This podcast is brought to you by Watch City Research, your user research partner. Check out watchcityresearch.com for insightful blog posts and to learn more about our UX research services. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the 97 UX Things podcast. Dan Berlin here, your host and book editor. I'm joined this week by William Intim, who wrote the chapter, Don't Perform Competitive Analysis Before Ideating. Welcome, William. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining the podcast. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, my name is William Intim. Um, I was actually born and raised in West Africa, Ghana. Um, and I migrated or emigrated into the United States um, in 2009 at 19 years old. And uh, I have, my major is, was in multimedia design, but then it evolved, you know, over time into what, what I now do as a senior UX designer. Um, and it's been about 10 years so far in the industry, but I'm based in Austin, Texas, and currently a senior UX designer at PayPal. Gotcha. Can you tell us a little bit more about that transition between multimedia to UX? What, what helped with that transition? Yeah, so honestly, the, the college course was set up beautifully, in my opinion, because the primary focus was on 3D animation, which was pretty cool. Um, but then it did have uh, supporting courses such as Photoshop, which is graphic design, you know, so a focus on graphic visual design, as well as um, sound, audio, hmm. and then video and then 3D animation plus web design and development. Yeah. So that was that was an incredible variety of, you know, just multimedia or just medium to really consume and and delve into. And I think that helped develop my passion for all things just communication, right? Digital media, um, mm -hmm. which has been useful in uh, UX design because you're designing for multiple devices. Right, right. Great. And can you dig, dig in a little bit more about your UX journey? So you mentioned discovering it uh, in those courses, but can you tell us about uh, your UX journey and how you wound up where you are today? Yeah. So, <laughs> so the first job, uh, my first job was I was a graphic designer intern at the college that I went to, Lone Star College in Houston, Texas. Um, and then I got my first real job as a graphic designer at a local Yellow Pages publishing company. <laughs> so, nice. yeah, it was crazy. They still they still exist for some reason. But <laughs> so so that was my first real job, and it was a nice promotion, a good you know good um, hourly rate. I was really excited for it, but because I took web development, which we now would call that front end development, right? So because um, I really didn't do a lot of back end MySQL. You know, I, I just focused on the front end sure. side, the design, the beauty of it, Java, JavaScript, et cetera. So I got into this role as a graphic designer. And while in this role, I was able to convince the owner. I mean, it was a small local company, but they were making, you know, uh, multi-million dollars. So I told, the, I told the CEO, I was like, hey, I know how to build websites. We can leverage the current customer base. Uh, who are businesses, local businesses in that particular city and offer web services to them. So it took me about three months of convincing her. I got a raise to uh, or a bump uh, to promotion to senior uh, web developer for the company. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, 
I started building the website. So I'm doing the WordPress PHP side, the back end of it, as well as the design of it. That to me was when I really started kind of uh, forming my passion around which side of the of the process I want to be really focused in on, right? Because the development yep. was just, I mean, I enjoyed it, but that wasn't my passion. I was right. always going back to, to the fonts and to the space and the margin, the pattern, um, and how that experience really generated sales, um, what it looked like on mobile, different devices. So that was when, you know, the world of UX really, I think, occurred to me. Um, and then prior to that, I went to a career fair uh, prior to getting that job that uh, had a UI role. And I remember speaking to the, you know, to the company and I said, hey, uh, I'm a graphic designer. Like, I'm really good. I have a portfolio of print and I had, you know, back back in those days, you had those uh, huge PDF, uh, you know, you're walking around with your graphic prints and everything. So, oh, right. yep. you know, like you always had the, the physical prints, right? I had that, I showed it to them and they're like, well, we're looking for a mobile designer. And I said, what do you mean? Is it well for mobile apps? I said, well, I'm a graphic designer. I can do it. It's the same thing. And they're like, no. So I was turned down, hmm. you know, back then. Yeah. And I think that was like that, that is still that uh, curiosity and frustration as well, because I thought to myself, I know I'm a really good graphic designer, but these guys just turned me down for some UI, UX role. Yeah. Um, and I decided to look into it some more. So. Fast forward with this web design and designing for all these different devices, that was when I really realized, oh, this is what UX really is. And there's a whole discipline, you know, with processes and principles and methodologies that really bring this to life even more. And I was mm -hmm. like, wow. So then I started focusing on the design. I told him, hey, look, I don't want to do the development anymore. And then yeah. I started pursuing uh, UX centered roles. Uh, that's kind of how it really form for me there. Wonderful. I, lo I love hearing that transition from uh, the development and, and graphic design to getting the more holistic view and, and realizing that you're, you're leaning towards the other side of that and, and, and following that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, definitely. Your chapter, don't perform a competitive analysis before ideating. Can you please uh, tell us about that? Yes. So <laughs> there's a lot to say about that chapter. The, the background of that chapter really stemmed from working with, you know, distributed team around the world uh, of UX designer, great UX designers, but then uh, noticing this very, I guess, minute, but also very important part of the process. Um, because during design meetings, or I guess, um, product requirement meetings, et cetera, wh whatever you want to call it, um, intake meetings, right? Um, I found out that designers were quick to pull up what the competitor was doing or what yeah. other businesses and companies are doing. And I think that that was a shock to me, you know, in, in the beginning, because I thought to myself, oh, that, that's what we do. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then it was just so normal. Uh, but I never did that. I always wanted to craft the experience or ideate first of what I thought this the perfect solution would be based on the data points and the data sets that I had in that particular project or business or company or, you know, moment. So that really 
was something that took me aback a little bit. And I pondered over that. I ended up pondering over it for about a week. And then I had to vent. I was like, I, I need to, this needs to go out. And I put those thoughts together and realized, you know what? I do have a point. I did some more research on that and realized, yeah, there is bias that's formed with that. Because you cannot, at first instant, just reach out or, or view what competitors are doing and then come back and produce a written, original work. So yeah. that was that, you know, cycle for me where I, I reached that conclusion, but I needed to validate it. So I, you know, got on YouTube, got on uh, I, I read some books. I think one of them that uh, stood out to me was the, I think it's the Blue Strategy or so. Um, and I've forgotten who wrote it, but it talks about uh, Blue Ocean, Blue Ocean Strategy. It talks about, you know, competitive analysis, but also kind of building products based on what competitors are not doing. So mm-hmm. there is a whole world about around c- competition, what competitors are doing. And then even to find out that our sprint cycles also affect what's out live in production. So mm-hmm. if we're looking at what Amazon or these other competitors are doing, well, that was six months ago, were estimatedly, right? So now right. if we try to build that and, and develop that, we're actually gonna be six months behind because they're already working on something now that's set to come out you know, pretty soon, Absolutely. et cetera. So you're, you're always gonna be one step back. And I think that was important for me to highlight and just break it down, hey guys, this is what we're missing when we are quick to look at what the competitors are doing. Like, we're gonna do that in the next step, but right now, let's let's get our you know notebooks, whiteboards, let's ideate, let's brainstorm, whatever we need to do to collect that fresh data, uh, or mm-hmm. not even data, fresh ideas, and let's just seal that. Now, let's see what other people are doing. And then it helps you validate what you're working on or what ideas you had, and that has been so helpful for me, honestly, in my mm-hmm. career so far, because I will put down ideas that I think will work based on research and all that information I have concerning the project and then perform competitive analysis only to find out that, oh, wow, one, either competitors are doing the same thing. So that validates the idea or competitors are doing something completely different that is not working. So then. You, you realize that you have gold. You have something that that's going to be even more effective than what's out there without any bias. Do you have a, a specific steps that you take when you do that? Is there a methodology uh, that you take when doing that next step and comparing um, what's out there to what you've ideated? Yeah, so I would say uh, competitive analysis as a, as a methodology itself is what I perform. But before I do that, I ideate or sketch with that with very little intrusion, even from team members. Hmm. So it might be a little extreme, but what I do, I would actually tell my team members, okay, I, I got the PRD, I got the project requirements, and give me some time to collect my thoughts. I would actually step away if I need to. Back in the days pre-COVID when we were in the office, I would actually step into one of the whiteboard rooms and just map out what I think how I understand the, the ask and also how I see the solutions or possible solutions working and then come back and have that brainstorming session. Because with cognitive bias, you're looking at bias, not just from competitive analysis, but also from your team members, from the same people you're going to be working with. But you have to make sure that you're being original with your thoughts. If every team member can protect their thoughts, 
you're you're gonna end up having a collective of just incredible thoughts. It's still possible in brainstorming sessions where everybody's just spewing ideas. That still works. But the thing is, there's still gonna be that cognitive bias, you know, which comes in from different angles. Because now you say something, it might trigger an idea from me, but the initial thought that I would have had without your influence is now either gone, you know, with the wind, and I may never be able to uh, uh, get that back. So, so. Protecting my original thoughts is like the first step. And then the next step is competitive analysis. Okay, well, the next step is actually opening up to the team members. So collecting team members' thoughts, which are also supposedly protected. So it's original, authentic, and then we put those together, brainstorm, and then also introduce competitive analysis, figure out what are our competitors doing? How can we involve our research teams to, you know, what data do they have to support or influence kind of the solutions that we're proposing or thinking about. And then we, we go from there and then we can analyze and use affinity mapping or card sorting or, you know, whatever we need to do to kind of group and sort out um, the, the possible solutions that we have for this particular problem. Yep. Yep. Thank you for that. Yeah. It sounds like you've been doing this for a while. Tell me about resistance to this. Have you encountered resistance to this way of um, ideating and, and are there ways of overcoming this? I have. I have. Um, I think I think it's not really done uh, purposefully. You know, I would I would honestly say it's mostly um, just habit and also time constraints or deadlines. So that also forces, you know, the process to be shortened, to be very fast and swift and um, leaves very little room for, for us to really be attentive to individual steps of the process. But I think personally, I've done, I've been, like you said, I've been doing this for a while and, and that has also helped me develop my own way of protecting these thoughts. And, you know, you can't really hundred percent avoid cognitive bias, right? Because we're always using apps and we're watching, you know, we're out there, there's media, there's ads. So you always right. have some kind of information coming in, but to take that extra step to protect the little that you have left is still useful. So yeah, I do get the pushback, but not willingly. It's just, you know, normal, natural constraints of like deadlines. We need this like yesterday. So mm -hmm. then you're either stuck with, okay, I need to ideate and pour everything out right now or I need to just not be so, I guess, overprotective of it and just let maybe this one go because you have team members that are around the world, they're in different time zones, and this particular moment is the only moment that you might have uh, to, to, to have everyone in the room. So there's so many little you know, uh, situations that affect the, your ability to, to follow this principle. Um, but if you do it well enough, you're still able to upon hearing that process, because it's all about speed too, sometimes, of course, you know, part of the time, uh, but you're able to kind of, like I can actually be hearing or listening to a, a product requirement and already formulating ideas and solutions in my mind before that project requirement is, is done being read. So that helps me already know, okay, I'm either jotting you know things down, writing things out, typing out my text edit um, or notepad before the team is like invited to speak or pour ideas in. So that helps collect a little bit of gold. You know, I call that those gold nuggets before um, it's, it's influenced. Yeah. Well, even just yeah. taking those few moments, even if it is just a few moments or hopefully a day, 
to collect your thoughts before digging into looking what's out there. Um, yes. Even that small little bit can, can help so much. Yes, and, and I'll, to add to that too, I just, I just thought of this. Please. Um, you know, uh, sometimes as the PRD is, is being read, you have team members or even the project manager will already suggest some solutions as they're presenting this problem statement to you. So being able to say, okay, uh, okay, uh, give me some time, right? So I'll do that, I'll, you know, like you said, just say, hey, give me some time to, you know, kind of figure out, explore some options first, and then I'll circle back with you and we can kind of brainstorm and figure out what ideas that we want to put together. That definitely helps because I've had, I've had some of those slip through the cracks where it's like, your brain or my brain gets stuck with what was said or you know that solution that was presented along with the PRD and then I find myself going down this road of trying to make that solution work and then mm. only to, to only to go all the way create the the mocks and present it and do a design review and then come back to the same place that I would have arrived at if it was just my idea because that initial idea that came with a problem statement didn't work. Of course, it wasn't something that a UXer really thought about. Okay, knowing what I know, having the experience I have, this other solution is probably going to work better, right? But also given it into what the project uh, manager is bringing down, that does affect, um, you know, the experiences you create and the effectiveness of it. Yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and all this not to say uh, that competitive analysis isn't important because it still that's can correct. be very important. It's just a matter of when. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's it's super important because, like I said, it helps validate your solutions. It also helps uh, it helps you identify gaps in your own user experience or in competitors' user experience. So that 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 also helps you. Uh, kind of identify the, I guess, um, uh, what, what would you call them? You know, not gaps, but the opposite of gaps, um, strengths, right? So it helps you identify the strengths in your user experience as compared to your competitors. And you can use those strengths, right? For marketing campaigns, for, I mean, yep. you can really run with it and uh, kind of drive those, uh, you know, numbers up when it comes to conversion, et cetera. But it's super important. It's just a matter of when. Yep. And, and when doing those competitive analyses, is are there certain ways we should be doing them to make them most effective? In, in oh, UX that's design? a good question. I mean, with with the influx of data <laughs> and the constant shifts of user behavior, the volatility of user behavior has also kind of increased um, over you know just this this past year uh, and, and couple of years. That's a good. I would sure. definitely say. I think. Yeah, it goes back with starting with your user and truly identifying true competitors. That would be my baseline. Okay, that would be the foundation that I'll build this on because mm. sometimes from the on uh, from the outside, two businesses might seem like they are in competition with each other just because they might be in the same category. You know, if you dig into the demographics and geographics of your users, right, the household income, etc you realize that you might actually be targeting different different consumers. And then that also affects how you mm -hmm. perform competitive analysis because you, you because you can rule that competitor out and just focus on the ones that are truly your competitors. So it really, for me, I, I think the big part uh, will be uh, truly identifying uh, your users, right? And, and 
identifying the users of your supposed competitors and comparing to make sure that you have at least, I would say over 70, 80% similarities between those users, that would be quality information. But if you're looking at anything, uh, you know, 50%, yeah. that's not really strong data. I think that would be uh, something hurtful to, to try to base your um, experiences and updates and, you know, uh, um, optimization on a 50% competitor. You want to kind of make sure it's, it's a higher amount in yeah. that regard. Uh, that would be the biggest one for me. And then, of course, making sure that you're collecting data the right way uh, and you have, you know, a good research team that's uh, that has access, of course, ethical ways of, of collecting this data and, you know, just really, you know, practical ways of of, um, of not hurting the market and, and being, you know, being considerate of uh, the methods, the way we collect the data, how we're infiltrating the competitive systems, et cetera. It's, it's a whole... Yeah, it's a whole kind of a ethical part that follows that. Yeah. I, I, that's a whole other episode here. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, so, William, this has been a wonderful conversation about uh, making sure to get your ideation out before doing competitive analysis. Was there anything else you were hoping to convey to folks uh, here today? Uh, uh, yeah, so I would say definitely paying attention, not just competitive analysis, but paying attention to every step of the user experience process, you know, design thinking, uh, just our process of taking a problem statement and then collecting data, obtaining data, synthesizing, and then ideating, et cetera, all the way to production and, uh, you know, shipping, right? I I want users to pay very close attention to the steps of this process and then also the order of these steps because if it's not done in an orderly manner then you are bound to get different results right at any step of the process that would affect your overall output so that's that's an important thing the order of the steps and then also the steps itself right and then um lastly why we do every step I think it's important for users to understand why do we even ideate? Why do we brainstorm? Why do we bring the teams together? Why do we do competitive analysis, research? Understand why each of these processes are in place um, to arrive at the outcomes that we're looking for. And once you do that, it helps you perform or create experiences just uh, naturally. Because even if you have tight deadlines, you're still able to uh, kind of either perform certain steps faster or shrink certain steps together, but you're looking at the underlying uh, value throughout each pro- each part of the process to get out, uh, to produce that overall perfect, well, it's never gonna be perfect, but you know, that maximal output yeah. uh, in the end. So yeah, that's all I got. And if we are mindful about those steps, uh, similar to the conversation we've been having here, we can find ways to eliminate exactly. bias at each step. You know, whether it's at the competitive analysis step or the user interview step, there there's always ways to be doing this. Exactly, sure. exactly. Beautifully said. So uh, thank you for all of this. In our last uh, segment here, we like getting a career tip, whether it's for folks breaking into the field or for folks who have uh, lots of experience. Do you have a career I tip do. for our um, listeners? I would say, and I'm not sure if this has been said before, but I would say be truly passionate about helping people through your work as a UX designer or UX professional. 
because the passion is what's mm-hmm. going to carry you through the ups and downs of our discipline. It's very emotionally tasking. Um, and you don't know, you can have your work, your experiences that you create be pushed back, be ignored, be rejected. Now, if you're not truly passionate about it, this can kind of sway your motivation levels, right? Which would affect your performance and eventually lead to burnout. So I'd say make sure that you're protecting your passion and you're still falling in love with, um, you know, what we do as user experience practitioners, because we are shaping the future of technology and human, really human computer interaction. So let's keep that keynote um, in mind. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Yeah, and and not and and the passion and the passion for the user and making sure we keep the user in our exactly. UX exactly. conversations. Yeah. So William, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for, so yeah, much no, for joining for me here me. today. This, this has been awesome. I appreciate you putting this together for UXers out there. I know they they're gonna find this very useful. I hope so. That's yeah. that's the goal, right? Thank you for listening, everyone. You've been listening to the 97 UX Things podcast. My guest today has been William Intim, who wrote the chapter, Don't Perform a Competitive Analysis Before Ideating. Thanks for listening. The 97 UX Things podcast is a companion to the book 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, published by O'Reilly, and all book royalties go to UX nonprofits. The theme music is Iron Lung by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and I'm your host and book editor, Dan Berlin. Please remember to find the needs in your community and fill them with your best work. Thanks for listening.